As a listener to Intelligent Medicine, you know that fish oil provides the vital omega-3s, EPA, and DHA that support your cardiovascular, brain, nerve, vision, immune system, joint, and skin health, as well as your inflammatory balance. My preferred fish oil brand is Vital Nutrients, offering a line of 11 ultra-pure omega-3 solutions, including soft gels, liquid, and enteric-coated options in a variety of potencies. Vital Nutrients even offers a high-performance and nutrient-dense vegan omega supplement option. Vital Nutrients' line of ultra-pure omega-3 solutions are held to the most rigorous quality standards in the industry, ensuring maximum freshness, purity, and potency. I use Vital Nutrients myself and recommend it to my patients. For more information and to order, call 888-328-9992. That's 888-328-9992. Or go to vitalnutrients.co. That's vitalnutrients.co for the Vital Nutrients line of Ultra Pure Omega-3 Solutions. Welcome to today's Intelligent Medicine Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Ronald Hoffman. You know, we often talk about SIBO, small intestine bacterial overgrowth. And it's one of the most important concepts that underlie functional medicine these days. Uh, It helps us diagnose challenging problems like irritable bowel syndrome, people who suffer from gas, bloating, indigestion, constipation, or diarrhea. And uh, today we're going to talk to an expert. He's done a deep dive on the subject. He's my good colleague uh, here in New York. Uh, he's a functional medicine physician, uh, Dr. Lauren Marks. Uh, we heard from Dr. Marks uh, earlier during the pandemic uh, on his reflections about uh, natural support for COVID-19. We're going to switch gears today because uh, he, uh, in his practice here in New York, has done a deep dive on the subject of SIBO, small intestine bacterial overgrowth. So uh, he is a graduate of uh, New York Chiropractic College. Uh, he's been in practice for many decades here in New York City. Uh, he's a veteran. He's a go-to guy for uh, a lot of uh, the inhabitants of the New York metro area. So without further ado, here's Dr. Marks. Uh, Lauren, it's a pleasure having you back on Intelligent Medicine. Thanks for joining us once again. Thank you so much, Ron. It is a pleasure to be back with you. Um, I just want to comment also that you had just recently put a uh, blog out on uh, fragility and, uh, you know, metabolic fitness. And I just want to encourage everybody to go and take a look at it because it's outstanding. Well, thank you. Yeah. Yeah. You know, it's sort of uh, I think that's the the report card on your on your uh, uh, metabolic fitness, on your vulnerability. And, you know, these days we're talking not just about COVID-19, of course, that's in the headlines, but uh, the very self-same things that uh, kill you when you have COVID-19 are the things that might kill you anyway. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. So, yeah, but it's succinct and it's so like right there when you like a report card, like you said, and you just go down and you look at it and you go, where am I at? And exactly. so anyway, kudos to you on that. Thank you. Thank you so much. I appreciate that. I take it as a compliment from you. Uh, so. Uh, first of all, you know, give us a, a definition of uh, SIBO and, you know, why is it uh, important for us functional medicine doctors to uh, do that assessment these days? 
Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, again, uh, as you pointed out, it's an acronym that is called Small Intestine Bacterial Overgrowth, called SIBO. There are different acronyms that we use in medicine, <laughs> and uh, this one in particular is in a category which is known as functional gastrointestinal disorders. Um, And that differentiates it from uh, things like an IBD, which would be things like uh, Crohn's disease and ulcerative colitis and things like that. And so it's to be very clear that it is not associated, it is not that those Mm -hmm. disorders and that a functional disorder is one in which a person doesn't seemingly have a disease process yet the symptomatology can uh, really cause a significant impairment in the quality of one's life Uh, it is defined in various ways one being the symptoms that people present with uh, a lot of gas Bloating is a hallmark symptomatology of SIBO, um, various states of constipation, diarrhea, uh, uh, cramping, pain, and, and then there are even what is called extra-intestinal symptomatology, which does not seem to be aimed uh, or, or originate from the intestine, yet Things even like rosacea and rashes can come from alterations in the gut. So when we uh, make an actual definition of this process, um, it's an understanding. First of all, it's a disorder of the small intestine, not the large. And um, we're looking at an overgrowth of bacteria that occurs within the small intestine. Mm-hmm. And yet it is, and even though you go after it in part by eradicating the overgrowth that is there, it needs to be differentiated from other infectious processes of the gut because they're not what is called pathogens, which someone could have that would make them acutely ill or chronically mm-hmm. ill. Like like, is, like salmonella, for example, or, you know, something right. very, uh, you know, campylobacter, you know, exactly. uh, monosomas right. revenge, that kind of thing. Those things would give you acute diarrheal illness in the majority of cases. But these, this is a more chronic, typically longstanding issue, but it is defined where the bacteria that are normally live in the small intestine are of low volume and concentration compared to that of the large intestine by far. And so when the bacteria in the small intestine become more like the bacteria that exists in the large intestine, it is defined as a small intestinal bacterial overgrowth. Now, how, how do you get SIBO? I mean, wh- why are people... Uh, predisposed to SIBO? Is SIBO like a a modern disease, a disease of civilization, or is it just an age-old problem? No, I think that's an excellent question, I mean, which we could beg to discuss on on any illness, but uh, in this particular case, um, I think that the prevalence of this disorder is actually on the rise. Mm 
And I think that it has a lot to do with uh, the lifestyle and dietary intake of people, although there are other issues and we can dive into those. Um, Approximately 550 million people worldwide, uh, it is estimated, do suffer from SIBO. Mm -hmm. And that constitutes about 11 to 11 and a half percent of the world population. Mm -hmm. So, you know, that's that's a staggering number. Right, and, and very, very few of them have been properly diagnosed. Absolutely. Uh, it's only recently that it's it's come to light that uh, SIBO uh, exists. Uh, you, another point I wanted to elicit from you is, you know, we in functional medicine, we've been talking about this, you know, ever since I was in functional medicine. In the 1980s, we talked about uh, Canada, the yeast connection. We talked about what's called dysbiosis, which is an uh, imbalance in the intestinal bacteria. Uh, and and now uh, conventional medicine has suddenly uh, embraced SIBO uh, mm-hmm. as a diagnosis, and you know that's to the good. But it, it's you know we in this field have recognized that this has been a problem for you know ever since I've been in practice. Right. Well, if you think about uh, intestinal symptomatology that patients bring to a primary care doctor to a functional medicine doctor, you know once. Once a gastro, for instance, once a gastroenterologist uh, sees a patient, if their primary care says, okay, try this medicine, try this medicine, this didn't manage it, okay, go to the GI. The GI then takes a good history and then says, okay, let's do, let's scope you and look and do an endoscopy if the GI symptoms are more upper, or let's do a colonoscopy and make sure there's no diseases and alterations within the functional anatomy. And then once they've ruled that out, um, the training is not uh, that astute to functional disorders. Right. And so a lot of people were left with, yeah, but I have bloating all the time after my meals and I have diarrhea all the time or I have constipation. And a lot of medication was uh, dispensed to patients in the attempt to manage these mm-hmm. symptoms, uh, but without resolution. Yeah, and, 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 and you know, the old joke is, uh, you know, you have all these symptoms and you go to the GI and uh, they do all these tests, and at the end of the at the end of the uh, process, they say, "Gee, I have absolutely no idea why you're having these problems." Yeah, <laughs> but dump, dump. Yeah, I mean, look, uh, you know, you never want to make someone else be wrong in order to make you right. I have found that, <laughs> you know, in my years of experience. Uh, but in reality, there I see from what patients have brought to me over such a millennia of time that a lot of gastroenterologists are just not that savvy when it comes to this diagnosis. Mm-hmm. And, um, and so they are aware of what is called the breath test. And some hold the value on it, some do not. Um, they're aware of the primary antibiotic associated with the treatment of it, which is rifaximin, and they may, yeah, mm-hmm. yes, yeah, same same medicine, yep. generic term versus the other. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, they'll give people 550 milligrams of zyfaxin, uh three times a day for two weeks, and the patient, some will get better. It's like a, some, cook, it's a cookbook approach. 
And, I, you it know, is- actually, I got to say, you know, my, my personal theory is one of the reasons for the popularization of this diagnosis of SIBO is that, you know, before the advent of Zyfaxin, there wasn't anything you could do for it. Now, uh, it kind of like you take the test, you're positive, and it juices the sales of a pharmaceutical uh, agent, which is really pretty damn expensive. That drug is... Oh. I, I've had patients who come back to me, so they tell me, you know how much this drug costs? It costs hundreds and hundreds of dollars. And so we, we've had a couple of patients who get, uh, you know, the generic uh, Rifaximin from India, you know, like uh, mm-hmm. they offshore it in order to obtain uh, the uh, medicine. Absolutely. Actually, uh, years ago when our mutual uh, friend, Dr. Gerard Mullen, the gastroenterologist at Hopkins, mm-hmm. uh, when uh, when the insurance company was not paying the bill, they would refuse because it was such a high tier item on yeah. the uh and the dispensary, um, I had patients come in and tell me that the prescription was $3,600. Yay. Yeah. So, <laughs> I mean, it's one thing if it's like it's going to like cure a brain tumor. But, you know, we're talking about, you know, I've got gas and bloating and diarrhea. I mean, 3600 bucks that's pretty steep. <laughs> you know? yeah, yeah, it is. So, anyway, it's still, e- e- even today, it, yeah. can be, it can be quite pricey. And look, it has a value. Let yep. me put it, let, let, let me let me be honest here and say that everything has a value, okay? Um, and um, for some people, uh, taking well, first of all, let's go. Let's take a step aside on this for yep. just a more brief moment yep. and say that depending upon the type of SIBO one has, there is different approaches. Okay. So we need to define the fact that there are two main types, which is, you can call it, you know, it's, first of all, IBS, uh, irritable bowel syndrome, has 60 to 80% of all people that have IBS Mm -hmm. or have IBS because they have SIBO. Okay. Okay. All right. So which is a pretty high percentage. Mm -hmm. All right. All right. So then you have you know, you do these, what is called the breath test or a hydrogen uh, mm-hmm. breath test, which is hydrogen and methane, which is what you can read on these tests. Now, this and, is sometimes done in the office, but you can also now through the use of kits, patients can be mailed these kits and then they breathe into the bag after drinking a substance, right? And, and you, That is correct. Yeah. Right. So that's how we do it. We, we, we provide the kits to the patients mm-hmm. and we give them the... Uh, protocol for how to prep for it properly. And the primary thing is that you drink this substance after you do a baseline breath test. Um, and you, you know, we use lactulose. You lose which, which lactulose. And sometimes people lactulose. use, uh, what is the other uh, challenges? Glucose. glucose. Glucose or lactulose. Yeah. Lactulose, I think, is, is more uh, precise. Uh, but it requires a doctor's prescription to prescribe lactulose, I think. That is true. That is true. Um, they actually, the North American consensus, which is this uh, large body of gastroenterologists and studies, um, they actually say that the specificity is higher with glucose. Oh, really? Okay. But yeah, but um, but of the two substrates, as it is called, um, I personally like the lactulose better. Mm-hmm. Um, some doctors even use both, but it's very time-consuming and difficult yeah. to do. Um, the, they say that glucose has a higher specificity, but the problem is, is that once you drink the glucose, um, by the time it gets 
down through a third of your small intestine, it becomes metabolized and then there's it's not present for right. the more distal aspect. So and it goes back and forth and I see that the the very astute uh, physicians in this field um, know that both of them can be an effective agent and it pretty much comes down to uh, what you want to use. You know, if you're getting consistent results, it's mm -hmm. all about getting an accurate test. Okay. And right? you know, when, I, when I do that test, I think of like uh, the Hindenburg, you know, oh, the humanity, you know, that explosion in, uh, uh, you know, Linden, I guess it was uh, Lindenhurst, New Jersey, you know, where the, where the oh, yeah, limp sure. uh, exploded because it was full of hydrogen. But yeah. this is actually a hydrogen breath test, right? It measures <laughs> precisely the explosive material that blew up the Hindenburg. <laughs> yeah, but, but don't let people get scared and think that they um, <clears throat> shouldn't be near fire because it right. won't blow you up. <laughs> no, no, it's, it's the, you're not, I mean, you're going to be gassy, but you're not like, I mean, you may feel like yeah, a blimp, yeah, but dangerous. you're not the Hindenburg. Okay, right. Right. So anyway, but on the breath test, you're looking for both the presence of elevations within either methane or hydrogen gas, mm -hmm. of which are both not, uh, except for a very small percentage, are not manufactured in the gut, believe it or not. Mm -hmm. And so what's happening is, is that all of that bacteria that have set themselves up in a new home, which is the small intestine, in high, higher concentrations, mm -hmm. is now interacting with carbohydrate foods mm -hmm. uh, that are able to be fermented in the digestive tract. And it's that interaction between those carbohydrates and the bacteria that form those various gases. Right. And so... When they form, whether it's hydrogen, whether it's methane, whether it's mixed, mm -hmm. uh, they then become absorbed through the lining of the gut, and then they are expressed through your breath, which is why the breath test was invented mm -hmm. and how it is able to appropriately capture these time sequence test tubes if we can call it that, um, through a very specific process in which, you, you know, you're explained when you take the test. Mm -hmm. It takes three hours to go through 10 test tubes. That is the best way to do the test. Mm -hmm. um, there have been some controversy within the field of uh, some doctors saying, I don't like the test. I don't. Mm -hmm. But the truth is, uh, after doing hundreds of these and speaking to some very erudite physicians within this uh, realm. Yeah. Yeah. Yes, okay. Um, that if you have the patient prep properly, which is to avoid fermenting foods, if you take do use an excellent lab um, that knows what they're doing. And, and by the way, which lab do you use? Because there are several labs. You know, there's uh, Genova, there's Aerodiagnostics. We talked to I, the... Uh, I personally like Aerodiagnostics. Yeah, and we interviewed the... Uh, what, what's the name of the guy? We interviewed him, uh, you know, a few months ago. Yes. I think it was last Gary, year. Gary, Gary Stapleton. Gary Stapleton, who's very, right. very authoritative on this. And it, I think part of it is also is not just doing the test. It's the art of interpreting the test. Absolutely. Uh, because it's not like, oh, you know, like a red light, green light, uh, you know, kind of thing. It's not very binary. It, it, they look for a particular pattern and the pattern 
helps you make the proper diagnosis, which leads to a therapeutic uh, approach. I couldn't agree more. I mean, the the thing that Gary has showed me um, was bringing out very relevant points in the diagnostic criteria. And even though I have studied with Narala Jacoby, who is a naturopathic physician in Australia, and she is a SIBO specialist, Mm -hmm. and I think that her information is stellar to uh, all functional medicine and any doctors who are interested in the subject matter. I think she's just phenomenal. Um, uh, Gary elucidated points in which I could not even get from her course. So I Mm. think, you know, the combination when, you know, when you're hungry for data and you want to learn more and you want to be the best at something, you, you, you derive information from wherever you can find it when it's quality. And um, his criteria is excellent. Uh, as he pointed out, if you have a lab that is holding high standards, if the patient preps right, if the interpretation of the data is done with precision, um, you will have an appropriate diagnosis that is valid and that you can repeat and you can monitor. Mm-hmm. Uh, we do about anywhere between six and eight week time frames of interventions for the treatment and then we retest on the breath gas because it is very um it's very patient friendly to be able to do that you know it's not invasive it's just Mm -hmm. doing it appropriately at home and teaching them how to um and you get to follow these patterns of Mm -hmm. dysbiosis within the gut by looking at them and you then can uh, appropriately move your therapeutics in whatever direction these graphs show you the patient is moving in so you're just coming back to circling back to a question that i posed earlier and then we moved on uh what might predispose someone to to SIBO you know we say you know diet but what aspect of the diet or is it you know some of our modern practices like uh lack of breastfeeding or you know is it uh taking acid blocking medication or certain other medications or lack of exercise i mean how yeah, okay. far down so, the line can we go on those oh, things? It, it's an excellent question. And one of the things that needs to be established here is that there is not just a diagnosis of SIBO, right? Because you can take any person who has a certain subset of digestive criteria that says, you know what, this seems like a SIBO thing. Mm-hmm. And you can do all your due diligence and you can do the breath tests and you could say yay or no, nay, it's present or it's absent. But finding out what caused the person's SIBO is equally, if not more important than the diagnosis itself. And so what we've done is we've created a criteria of looking at how did people develop it Uh and or what are the things you're doing that keep this moving. And so the the, the history is important. You know, you're going to do a long uh, detailed intake with somebody who might be suffering from this condition. Absolutely. Absolutely. As a matter of fact, what I did is um, from the from the course, uh, Dr. Jacoby had put this together because she dived deep like this, and she's put it out a paper that was called "What Caused My SIBO," mm-hmm. and and it okay. classified it uh, by. Uh, there's a lot here, but it classified it into various groups. The first group was: Is there impaired motility within the gut? Mm-hmm. So. Let's just go into that for one moment and say that 
motility is the movement along the digestive tract. And it is comprised of two physiologic processes, one being what is called peristalsis, which is a contractile wave-like movement that occurs during eating, during the day. Um, and then there is the migrating motor complex, otherwise known as the MMC. And this is a neurologic type phenomena in which motility in the gut, like what we call the clean sweep, will only activate 90 minutes after eating or during rest, as in sleep. So, so could, could stress affect that or is it be certain medical conditions affect uh, motility? Oh. And what? 100%, 100%. So medications is one of the biggie in terms of the list of uh, possible etiologies. We're always looking at our um, people on any type of antispasmodics. Mm -hmm. uh, do you take opiates or narcotics? That yeah. slows motility. Sure. Um, look how many people take proton pump inhibitors and antacids for chronic GERD and reflux. Tens of uh, millions, tens of millions of people. Exactly. Yeah. So that's that's like a huge, you know, that, that's just unbelievable. It's almost guaranteed to cause SIBO because you, by destroying the hydrochloric acid, uh, you allow the bacteria to proliferate uh, where it shouldn't in the right. intestine, in the and, small intestine. And that's why I actually term, because I, I was asked to do a lecture on this, and the lecture is called the SIBO conundrum. Mm -hmm. uh, because you have so many people suffering from uh, acid reflux disease, GERD, and so forth, um, and so many people are on those medications, and they do create a perpetuation of the problem. We, we don't have to get into cross-referencing between the two, but it, it's really important. Uh, some people take uh, cholestyramine for uh, cholesterol binding or for uh, chronic diarrhea. That can be another issue. Um, some people who have not been diagnosed properly uh, who have diarrhea, they just live on anti-diarrheal medications, yeah. you know. Yeah. So, um, like uh, so, Lomatil, yeah, so, things like that, yeah. Yeah, I mean, mm -hmm. you know, it's it's not uncommon that people. I say, how long you been on this? Oh, yeah. years. Yeah, you know, yeah, things yeah. like that. And it's like um, thyroid disease is another. Yeah, slows uh, things uh, down. Mm -hmm. Right. So hypothyroidism is a biggie. Some people don't know they have it. Mm -hmm. If you have a chronic SIBO and a recurrent SIBO, and no one has actually tested your thyroid, uh, it should be done. Um, there is actually a hormone that is unknown to many that is in the conversion of T4 to T3 that's called motilin. Whoa. Yeah, and motilin is activated through that effective process. And there are some people who are on yeah. levothyroxine alone, yeah. and it doesn't allow for the normal expression. Because one of, one of the cardinal signs of hypothyroidism is, you know, you're, you're cold, uh, you're tired, uh, you're fat, and you're constipated. You know, yeah. dry skin, right? Constipation yeah. is a it's hallmark huge. of that. Yeah, mm -hmm. exactly. So Very that's hard. a biggie. So, so uh, yeah. So this is a perfect example of someone who is where somebody looks at the yeah. SIBO problem or the IBS yeah. and doesn't look at the surrounding. So, 
So this motility thing, it's a little bit, it's like as if there's a sluggish stream. I know you're a fisherman, you know, and, you, and what happens is if there's a stream that's like dammed up or sluggish, uh, mm -hmm. it tends to get muddied. The bacteria and algae proliferate. Uh, you get eutrophication. And, but that can happen in the gut too when the, when the motility slows down, when there's not a, a, uh, a very, uh, normal stream passing, uh, passage of the digestive uh, contents. Yeah, it couldn't be further from the truth. <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah, exactly. absolutely. I, 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 you notice I used a fishing analogy for you. Oh, I, I got that. <laughs> <laughs> it's close to home. A fly Good. fishing one, to be exact. <laughs> exactly. Right. Good point at which to pause, because we divide our podcast into two parts. And uh, I want to continue on the subject of uh, uh, SIBO. And, you know, we're talking about diet. We'll talk about uh, natural antifungals versus medication, uh, the role of probiotics. Uh, and we'll talk also, I'd like sure. to talk a little bit about some of the extraintestinal manifestations of SIBO because some people say, I just don't feel right. I feel lousy. But, and then you ask them about their digestion. They go, I guess it's okay. But maybe they still have SIBO, even if they're not focusing on their digestion. We'll tackle that in part two. I'm Dr. Ronald Hoffman. Today's guest is Dr. Lauren Marks. Uh, he's an expert on a wide variety of subjects. Uh, he's one of those point-and-shoot guys in functional medicine, but uh, he's recently done a deep dive on the subject of SIBO, so I invited him on to uh, help introduce our audience to that important concept. We'll be right back. This is Intelligent Medicine.